Welcome to Emerge Dynamics. Emerge Dynamics. The podcast for those who manage and invest in middle market private companies across the globe. globe. We're telling the stories of the unsung champions who take enormous risks every day to weave the fabric of our societies. Those who collectively, from the multi-trillion dollar largest market on the planet, we're diving into the dynamics of what makes some of them emerge from their peers and create incredible returns and impact on their communities. This is Emerge Dynamics. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Emerge Dynamics podcast. The fun continues on valuation today. I'm David Cusimano here with Eric Wingerter. Hi, David. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So we just wrapped up our series within a series on value builder drivers, but we have a few more things to say about business valuation Yes. before we wrap that whole thing up and go on to another topic. Right. So, Eric, today I thought we could talk about EBITDA. Yes. And why we use it and adjustments to EBITDA and its limitations. Yes. Earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization. Yes. Some people don't even, they say that EBITDA. What, what is that? EBITDA. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, no, I think it's important for us, David, to frame because everybody talks about EBITDA or they reference EBITDA. They reference multiples of EBITDA, all this other kind of stuff. But I think we got to, again, go behind the curtain there and say, you know, what are we really trying to get to? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's really about trying to understand what are the cash flows, inherent cash flows in the company, because as we said, in valuations, yeah. the three key components are the cash flows inherent in the business, the growth rate associated with those cash flows, and then the risk or the discount rate applied to that. It's this cash flows inherent in the business. And EBITDA is, sometimes I, I say it's one of those shortcut methods, if you will, but it's not the whole story. And I think because of that, that's why we need to dig a little bit deeper into it. Absolutely. And folks, if you just heard Eric talk about the three things about cash flow and risk, please go back and listen to some of our previous episodes where we unpack that pretty well, right? So very much worth your time. Yeah. And Eric, it's funny. And I think we've maybe even said something similar in previous episodes, but people get EBITDA multiples stuck in their heads. Like Larry at the country club, he got a seven for his business. And so I should get a seven for my bit. Right? And like, that's the depth of the thought, right? And yeah. someone's just stuck on that. And so I think we need to first talk about what EBITDA is. Cause you're right. The people sometimes use the term and don't even know what it is or why we're using it. Cause in, even though it has limitations, it is definitely the most prevalent metric in valuation in business valuation. Yes. It's most commonly used. And there's good reason for that. We're not saying it's garbage. There's good reason for it, but we need to understand what it is and its limitations. Yes. It is not yes. the end all evaluation. So, Eric, I think one thing that I've heard people say is that EBITDA is a proxy for cash flow. And I don't agree with that. No, because there's other things that are not contained in the EBITDA calculation, if you will, that impacts the cash flows in the business. And one of the biggest ones is capital expenditures. How much capital right. expenditures? Because that's while they come through depreciation, that's how they hit the income statement. You're exactly adding all of that back in the EBITDA calculation. And right. so therefore you're taking out all the implications of that depreciation impact because it's not a cash item. But 
the underlying capital expenditure is. And for some businesses that are very capital intensive, there's a huge impact on cash flows of the company that is not contained in that EBITDA calculation. Absolutely. And some prominent people out there, I'll reference as an article that we'll link to in our show notes. Sure. But Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, who is, I guess, his number two guy, number, or, number or at two least guy. Had, yeah. was for a long he's time. He's not a fan of uh, EBITDA. <laughs> exactly. In fact, if you read the article, he's got a choice four-letter word uh, for what he thinks of EBITDA. And to your point, Eric, our quote from Warren Buffett is he says, you know, does management think the tooth fairy pays for capital expenditures? <laughs> right. That's almost the fantasy we're in when all we do is think about EBITDA and yeah. don't take into account capital yeah. expenditures. Yeah. For a lot of companies today that are kind of in the service industry, where there might not be a whole lot of capital that's required. It's very labor intensive. That's a main component of your costs. And that's kind of as you go. It's easy to get caught in that trap of saying, well, I don't need to worry about CapEx because it's right. not a, whole, a big deal. But for others, it is a big deal. Really I think of the rental deal. business and things of that nature. Right. It's huge and it can really be distorting from a valuation standpoint mm-hmm. if you don't take that in consideration. We'll talk more about its limitations, but mm-hmm. you know, someone listening to this may be saying, okay, well, then why do you use it? And there is good reason to use it. And a better way I like to think of what EBITDA is telling us is it's the economic value of the business that is not adjusted for, or let me get my words right here. No, it's the economic value of the business that can be transferred apples to apples from a seller to a buyer. Right. Right. And the reason we adjust and add back interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And so for anyone not familiar with this, you go to net income at the bottom of your income statement and you add to it those items. So the number in most cases will get bigger, right? EBITDA is almost always larger than net income. income. And the reason we add back each of those things is because a buyer will quite likely have a different interest payment because they'll probably lever the business differently. They'll probably have a different tax structure, right? And because the buyer sometimes can write up the assets or the assets will be handled a little bit differently through the transaction itself, the buyer will likely have a different depreciation and amortization expense than the seller. And depreciation and amortization is a non-cash item. And you're really looking to get back to what are the cash flows in the business that are transferring from one owner to the next. And so another reason why. When we're looking at EBITDA, we're looking at a metric derived from the income statement. It is not on the income statement, but it's a metric derived from the income statement that a buyer and seller can now talk the same language about, about what's going to go over. Now, a savvy buyer will take that EBITDA and now apply and say, what will my interest be based on how I will lever this business in the transaction? What's my tax structure? And how the assets can depreciate for me? What's my CapEx I think I need to put in this business? Because the seller may or may not have been maintaining the equipment properly, right? right? So that's a big diligence item you need to really look at. And then that savvy buyer will then take that and create their estimation of future cash flows of the business from that. Right. And now we're talking. Which will then turn into the valuation. Absolutely. Yeah. And the offer. Absolutely. So, Eric, we need to talk, too, about EBITDA adjustments. And this is a really big deal. So even if you get all this right, you get the EBITDA right, buyer and seller are talking about the right EBITDA. In my experience, in fact, I don't know that I've ever worked on a transaction where we didn't have to adjust the EBITDA. Right. Maybe it's happened out there somewhere. I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) Nor have 
<laughs> nor have I. Right. And because we're starting with first and foremost is, as you said, the net income and these other components that we're adding back to that net income in the ongoing financial statements of the company. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's not, as you said, for this new buyer, there's not always going to be the same operations after the fact, or in a lot of cases, small business owners in particular are running things through their business that mm-hmm. would be more personal in nature, or they may be paying certain things to themselves in the form of salaries and other things that may be substantially distorted from what the reality is going to be right. of mm-hmm. a buyer, a new buyer stepping in. And those are the reasons why typically that you got to have these adjustments. Absolutely. And just to frame the conversation here, Eric, when you said personal in nature, I think it's important to clarify. A lot of times people assume that we're talking about, is it deductible? Is it not deductible? No. And for this conversation, we're not considering that at all. No. Right? No. So what may or may not be deductible is an IRS conversation that every business owner should have with their tax preparer. Right? Exactly. What we're looking at more is, is this, whether it's deductible or not, whether you've deducted it or not, is this an expense that a future buyer will have to incur right. in right. order to have the EBITDA continuing that they paid for right, going forward? So I think this is really important for buyers and sellers. If you're a seller of a business, you need to understand this because you need to understand how to properly present your EBITDA to maximize the value that you can get for your business. Right. If you're a buyer, you want to properly understand, I want to pay the right price to make the deal happen, but I don't want to over or underpay either. Or actually, I'd like to underpay, but often underpay means I don't get the deal done. Right. Right. So let's give some examples. Sure. I think one example that we always home in on first and foremost is What are the compensation items, including not only salary, but also perks that may be being paid right now in the business to the business owner? Mm -hmm. And what is likely for that business owner to continue to be in that business post-sale? And what is the compensation to that owner? Or if that owner is not going to be in the business going forward, what is the likely compensation of the replacement that's necessary in yeah. order to run that business? And so what's the difference between the compensation that exists right now and that's inherent in the existing historical cash flows, income mm-hmm. statement, and the EBITDA of the company? And what is then the projected replacement of that after the fact? Absolutely. And Eric, I'll give a couple of simple math examples to go sure, along with sure. that. Yeah. And these are both examples that I've seen in actual real examples. So one example is, let's say you have a business with an EBITDA of $100,000, but you haven't been paying yourself. Maybe you've been paying yourself only through distributions or maybe not at all. So let's just say you've been paying yourself only through distributions. So you may be thinking you have a business with an EBITDA of $100,000. And let's say you're also, you're working in the business. So you are actually one of the people making the business run. You have a $100,000 EBITDA. So you think, okay, if my businesses like mine are trading for a five multiple, then I'm going to get half a million dollars for my business. Well, you're not. And the reason is because let's say it would cost $100,000 for you to take yourself out of the business and for you to pay a president to run your business. Let's say that would cost $100,000. So we would have to now adjust your EBITDA down 
because right now your income statement is reflecting that the business is getting a free ride. It's not having to pay its president. So now you don't have an EBITDA of 100,000, you have an EBITDA of zero, zero. right? <laughs> and it doesn't matter at that point what multiple you multiply zero by, the enterprise value of your business is, zero. yes, going one direction with this example, but it's very real. And I, yeah. unfortunately I see this right. and there's some disappointed business owners. I see this the other way too. And very often we'll see a business owner is paying themselves $800,000 a year. Some folks say, you know what? I'm worth that. So yeah. I'm going to pay that and I'm going to reflect that on my W-2 that I'm worth that. Absolutely. And so let's say we've got a business with a million dollars of EBITDA and we've got an owner paying themselves $800,000 a year. Well, they own the business. They can pay themselves whatever they want, right? But in reality, it's incredibly rare that a market rate for a president of a company is $800,000, right? Usually it's two or 300,000, maybe plus some other perks or something like that. And I know there's a lot of inflation right now. We're recording this in 2022. Someone (laughs) listening to this two years from now may say your numbers are way off, but the concept still holds, right? And so what we would do is we'd take that $800,000 and we'd say, this is above market compensation. And let's say we determine that the market rate, if we had to go hire a president to run this business was $300,000, we would say there's 500,000 of above market compensation and we would adjust the EBITDA up. So then we'd say your EBITDA is not 1 million, is 1.5 million, right? And then any valuation exercise that we do beyond that is at the 1.5, not the one, right? Which is a incredibly different result (laughs) that you will get. Absolutely. I mean, that's a perfect example because it's one that we see all the time, all the time. Another example, there may be some operations that are ongoing in the business that are really kind of secondary to the real operations of the business. And the new owner may say, hey, I don't really want that. That asset or I don't I don't need that. To get this EBITDA time buying um, from you. So any, I don't need any, this. Yeah, any of the costs associated with that, I don't need it. We're gonna carve that out. And so when you do that, any of the cash flows that have been included in that income statement need to be adjusted. That EBITDA needs to be adjusted to take that out of the equation because the buyer's not gonna be taking that on. So there's Absolutely. there's a number of potential assets and cash flows associated with the assets that don't go along with the transaction would be another perfect example of why you adjust the EBITDA. Yeah, exactly. I'm just thinking of other ideas, other things I've seen before. Above or below market rent is another one. Sometimes the owners of the business also own the real estate that the business rents. And so they can set the rent and it may be above or below market. We need to adjust for that. If there's a related company that is selling a certain product or service to the business, we need to adjust for that. In fact, the exercise of understanding the value of a business, sometimes half of the effort is adjusting the EBITDA, (laughs) making sure we're starting in the right place. I think too, Eric, we should discuss, going back to your example related to that, is one-time adjustments. One example might be a lawsuit, exactly. If this is a business that traditionally does not get sued very often, and hopefully that's your your business, hopefully that's the case. Let's say last year there was a one-off event and it cost $100,000, I don't know, $200,000 to clear that up with legal fees. Often we'd say, okay, that's a one-time adjustment and 
we add that back. Right. Now, a lot of this is discretionary. A lot of this is negotiated between buyer and seller. And now if we look back historically and we say, wait, this business settles a $200,000 lawsuit every year, right? And now we say, well, hang on a second. <laughs> Maybe we don't add this back. It looks like whatever's going on with the way this business operates Maybe it's they're not doing very well with how they operate, or maybe in their industry it's or, litigious yeah, it's just an industry in, the, in right? the business. Yeah. Then we say, wait a second, we can't add this back because the new buyer can expect that. Guess what? Next year they'll be settling a lawsuit too, right? And it's going to cost them a similar amount of money. Yeah. So in that case, you don't add it back. I can think of one example of a company I was working with once. I was working for a buyer. We're going through diligence, trying to figure out what to pay. This company made household products and they sold them to Target, Costco, Walmart, things like that. They had all sorts of EBITDA adjustments they threw at us, right? And so sellers can get really carried away with this. And I recommend for a seller, be proactive in thinking through everything you can Mm -hmm. to put into your EBITDA adjustments that you're going to present to buyers. But make sure every single one of these, you can defend it with a straight face. Yeah. Because, again, anything can be negotiated. But the moment you start throwing garbage in here, your credibility is gone. The buyer doesn't believe anything. Guess what? We talk so much about risk. When buyers don't believe what you're saying, risk goes way up for them. Either they walk away altogether or the price goes way down. Yeah. Well, in this particular example, one of the adjustments they threw at us, you may also hear them called addbacks. Another way you hear it said is new product development expense. And- at first, okay, well, tell us more about this. Well, we tried to develop this new product. It didn't work out, cost us $100,000. And so we're adding that back because the product didn't work out. So to them, if we're paying, let's say, a six times EBITDA multiple, that is $600 more in their pocket. So they really want us to go along with this. We started to look and realize, well, hang on, you are a product development company. company. <laughs> you develop products all the time. And some of them work. And Target loves them, and some of them don't. Right. This right. is not an. I'm this not, is like I'm not research and development right. that is flowing through, and you win some, you lose some. But if that's in the nature of your business that you have to constantly reinvest in that, then that is an ordinary cost of the business. Right. And it's not going to go away. So it shouldn't be an impact. Yeah. So, Eric, let's leave listeners, I guess, with just some concluding framework thoughts here is that we can't possibly list. In this episode, every single EBITDA adjustment you might encounter. I think what we can do is, and like I said, often the EBITDA adjustment part, we did like how many? Seven episodes on all these things about valuation. The EBITDA adjustment part, though, is often 50% of the effort, right? And we're doing one episode on that. And the reason is because I think people would be bored if we just went through. But I think what we need to leave people with is there is such a thing as EBITDA adjustments. Even if you have your books completely correct, which often they aren't and we got to correct them, but even once we get them correct, even then there's EBITDA adjustments. And as a buyer or a seller, you need to understand that these things are real. They can be legitimate. Different parties have different incentives to throw extra things in or throw extra things out. And I think you really need to go in with the lens of, is this something that the new buyer, the new owner is going to have to incur. If it is, it's probably not something that you should accept 
And if you're a seller and you can't with a straight face tell a buyer that, yeah. don't even throw it don't, at don't, them. Don't right? even throw it. No. Exactly. And if you're a buyer, that's what you need to yeah, think. Credibility right? is the key and being totally forthright, as you said, being able to look somebody in straight in the face and justify <clears throat> that is so, so important to any transaction. It's that intangible value that will either benefit you or will come back to haunt you, depending on how you do it. And then, Eric, just to conclude by circling back to the beginning of our conversation about CapEx. Yeah. I don't want to leave this episode with people saying, okay, I got to get my EBITDA adjustments right. Now I've got my EBITDA. I'm done. What's my multiple? We can't underscore enough that EBITDA is super important. And we need to understand it in terms of, we're using it, though, to understand what's the future cash flow. Right of my business or the business I'm going to buy or the business I'm selling, right? Mm-hmm. So really important to talk with your M&A advisor, your investment banker, your business advisor to say, okay, we've got this EBITDA. If all your advisor is doing is telling you, yeah, your business will trade for a five. Don't yeah. sell for a five, hold out for a 5.5. If that's the depth of the conversation, get another advisor. It's not, it's a, <laughs> this is not a good advisor, right? <laughs> it's true we benchmark transactions often with EBITDA multiple to understand how they fell out. But maybe let's just leave one more example. That's in the article that we'll link to the show notes that I wrote a couple of years ago. You have company A, company B. Let's say they're the same EBITDA, but company A, pretty efficient. And the owners of company A had to put in, let's just say a million dollars of assets in order to get that business up and running. And these assets are now depreciating and now have to be replaced at some point. Company B, not as efficient, right? For whatever reason, owners of company B had to put in $2 million of assets in order to get the business up and running to get the exact same EBITDA out. All we do is look at EBITDA multiple. The EBITDA will never pick that up. But company A is saliently more valuable. We'll actually trade at a higher multiple once we do the proper math because we understand this business has got an incredibly higher rate of return for its owners, return on investment than company B. Your advisor should be walking that kind of thing. Whether you're the buyer or the seller, your advisor should be walking you through that kind of exercise too. All right. So I think that wraps us up. I'm realizing, Eric, we're not saying enough. Please subscribe to our podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you're going to get more of this every Tuesday delivered to you. We've got plenty more to talk about. And again, if there's topics you want to hear about, let us know. We have plenty more to say. We're not going to run out of them, but we're happy to maybe get to some topics earlier. If you have questions, comments, criticisms, we do make mistakes sometimes, believe it or not. Podcast at EmergeDynamics.com is where you can reach us. And And if you'd like to be a guest, uh, contact us. We'd love to have you on board and get the opportunity to you to actually share your story and your thoughts as well. Absolutely. And we've got kind of, so far we've covered two major themes, strategic planning and valuation. Mm -hmm. So if you have some good experience with strategy, strategic planning, and how that's transformed your business, how your business is really focused on vision and purpose, and that's really changed your culture, how your people operate, we really want to hear your story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now that we've covered valuation, and these are related, strategic planning and valuation, but if you've gone through a transaction, either buying or selling a business, and been able to apply these principles, we'd love to hear things that work, things that didn't work. These are stories we want to share and tell the world. So please do reach out to us. Absolutely. All right. So folks, join us next time for more fun. All right. 